Hello, hello, and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. Ladies, where you at? Ah! I don't know where I was going, where I was going with that. Every man is like, uh, what about what? me? <laughs> Sorry, dudes, you're yeah. not in this convo. I mean, you could be if talking about periods and estrogen is your thing. But full disclosure, this week we're talking about female hormones, mostly estrogen and progesterone, as they relate to gut function and IBS. So fellow estrogen producer, Amy, my darling, care to start us off a little bit? Or do you just want to tell the boys to go take a hike? Oh, no. Oh. Well, they're welcome. They're welcome. They're, most of the time, you know, men are around women, so they fair, should probably fair. learn a little bit about their hormones. That's right. That's right. I think. So please, men, stay, listen. Immerse yourself. S- sip on a little coffee or something. Yeah, immerse yourself in the female hormones. <laughs> I think the interesting thing about hormones is that working with my clients, I find that that at some points they might be focused on the gut or the hormones. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. maybe in the past they said, oh, I went to a naturopath or I went to a functional medicine doctor specifically for my hormones and they said that I had to fix the gut before I could fix the hormones. And like, it seems like there is this, you have to focus on one and then the other mentality. Yeah. That tends to be what I see, at least. And I think there has to be support of both. There has to be some support of hormones and of gut function and of the microbiome and those sorts of things in order for them to harmonize together. Mm-hmm. And again, like, I think sometimes we just get so caught up in one or the other type thinking that we probably want to have support in both areas so that both can function optimally. Mm. It's not necessarily a one or the other scenario. Like just fixing, just working on the gut might not totally get you there hormonally. And just working on hormones might not fix the gut. So there has to be a little bit of multifactorial strategies going on from what I've seen. But I definitely think hormones are is such an interesting topic especially with women because when it comes to IBS IBS is a lot more prevalent in women there's different reports on it some i think the general like data point i've seen is either like it's a 2 to 1 or a mm-hmm. 4 to 1 depending on the study so like it's a lot yeah. more common in women than men um And I think, again, like with a lot of my clients, symptoms can oscillate depending on what's going on with their hormones and what's going on cyclically with the ebbs and flows of their different hormones. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely an area that I don't think gets enough research either. Like there's definitely research out there in how different hormones affect gut function. Mm -hmm. But in general, I find that Across the board, I think women are underrepresented in research, but specifically, like, there's a lot I think we still don't know on how hormones affect the gut, and it'd be interesting how, as time goes by and we get more data points, how big of an influence might come to more light, so to speak. Yeah, and I think that you made a good point that, A, IBS is far more common in women than it is in men, and it's been hypothesized that a big driving factor behind that is the hormone piece of the puzzle. And I think I want to preface the conversation with this is that the 
the cool thing about hormones and the complicated thing about hormones is that they affect every single tissue and every single cell Mm -hmm. in the entire body. So everything from your small intestine down to your right pinky toe up to the cells inside your nose, like everything is going to be affected by not only estrogen and progesterone, but also insulin, insulin's hormone, thyroid hormone, I mean, cortisol, the so-called stress hormone. And not only do these hormones interact with every single cell of your entire body, which means that they are capable of so much, but also they interact with each other. And one hormone will influence the activity of another hormone. And you really, we're going to try to have as clear and linear of a conversation as possible so that we don't make this too obtuse and confusing. Right. But really, like, we can't just say estrogen does X, Y, and Z, and it does not do A. And progesterone does, you know, Q, R, and S. Like, it doesn't really work that way because estrogen and progesterone influence each other. They both influence thyroid hormone. They both influence cortisol. Like, there's so many effects. It's this really tangled, complicated spider web when you really get down to it. But we'll try to keep it as, like, linear uh, as we can. Because it's easier to understand the hormones and, frankly, care about them and take action if we can give you more of, like, a this hormone does this, this hormone does this, these are the symptoms of this kind of a conversation. Yeah, there's just a a huge cascade of different effects with hormones and that they're all interacting. And I totally agree with that. And I think, again, like, uh, things like cortisol, thyroid hormones, insulin, like, they're all, they're all sending signals out, and they're all reading each other's signals. And so it's, I think you're dead, you're dead on. And I find that a lot, there's sometimes hormonal patterns that are more common to, like, I think again, like some of the more stressed out patterns, like where cortisol Mm. is dysregulated can certainly affect uh, sex hormones in major ways. So you're dead on. I think again, it is, it is a little bit of a complex web to start going down. And I think we can kind of keep it, keep it as, as what's the word I'm as digestible for? as possible oh my gosh nikki ah, look at you i did it whoa i did it you are just crushing life there. today i know it i know it you know <laughs> me and my rainbow tie-dye hoodie what can i say well uh so i guess to start us off then so acknowledging that all hormones influence other hormones and shit can get real weird real quick when we talk about this and also acknowledging that particularly the sex hormones estrogen and progesterone and testosterone seem to influence gut physiology and things like motility and pain sensitivity. Um, I think we can open the door with just saying, have you noticed any distinct patterns with your clients? Because I definitely have with my patients in the sense that with women who have IBS or SIBO, I notice a lot of them will feel an uptick in symptoms, whether that be bloating or constipation or diarrhea a lot of them will get exacerbated symptoms towards the very end of their cycle, like the last Mm -hmm. three to five days prior to their period. And then during menstruation, usually there's an uptick in symptoms. And then some women seem to get a bit of an uptick around ovulation. So you have like this, this, you know, Mm -hmm. week, week and a half window on either side of ovulation where you'll feel reasonably good. And then 
pre-menstrually and during your menstrual cycle, it's usually when the shit's kind of hitting the fan. But have you noticed something similar with your clients? Yeah, definitely I've noticed a pretty similar pattern. And I also think it's like, I've had a few clients too, and this is random as well. And I think, again, might probably have something to do with estrogen, but Mm -hmm. when women have gotten pregnant, Mm. and again, they don't have that cycle anymore where they're getting a rise in estrogen, progesterone really increases, that symptoms get way better. I don't know if you've Mm. had that. I've had that with two clients in particular, where they say pregnancy has resolved a lot of their symptoms. That can happen with autoimmunity too, because the changes in the hormones influence the immune system and then it influences the autoimmunity. Yeah. I think again, with progesterone rising, being anti-inflammatory, probably having a role in intestinal permeability, not having as much estrogen could be at play too. Like if estrogen's driving more histamine or, Mm. you know, some of these other processes. So yeah, it's fascinating how hormonal shifts could make big changes like that. But yeah, I definitely see those cyclical changes. I also will say that I see a lot of people, you know, who are entering menopause, mm. their symptoms like coming out of like left field or getting a lot worse. Yeah, I see that that is common. And then I would say also, and this might be for a number of reasons, so I don't think this is solely hormone, like sex hormone related, but I've heard from a lot of women you know, after I had my second child, everything like hit the fan. Or, you know, after this pregnancy, I was never the same. Like, I've heard that a lot from a lot of different clients. Mm. And like I said, there's a lot of conflicting variables there with probably lack of sleep, just the stress of having it and raising a new baby. So again, I can't totally say it's the hormonal shifts. But I wonder a little bit about the hormonal shifts that might happen kind of following the end of a pregnancy, kind of the hormones trying to regulate themselves and how that could affect symptoms. I kind of wonder with those, with that too, to kind of go off of the pregnancy piece. um, I always wonder about things like adhesions, even, you know, certainly if you had a C-section, then that's very much on the table. But even without a C-section, if, if you look at, there's like pictures and videos on the internet where it shows like the side view, almost like if you slice the woman in half and it shows the growth of the baby and how the organs move. And like the baby is shoving your organs around, right, right. literally. And right. that's not even related to like, my daughter loved to kick me directly in the liver. As far as I could tell during pregnancy, like I would say, oh, she's what practicing karate right now. I know what yeah. a punk from day zero. But you know, it's like, even aside from the kicking, just the fact that the baby is taking up so much space, they're shoving your organs out of the way. Yeah. And the organs are staying that way for months at a time. And then all of a sudden, you know, out comes the kid and your organs have to figure out where to go again. Like, I think that probably a lot of women would benefit from visceral manipulation or some sort of abdominal massage technique after pregnancy because their organs have moved around. Right. So I no. wonder about that too. But definitely the lack of sleep and the stress are like crazy relevant for right. any anybody who just had a baby. 
Well, and I would think too, like in particular, if you're a smaller frame as well, like, you know, you know, the, those friends that are like five feet tall and they're pregnant and it's like, there's nowhere for that baby to go. It's and like, like, it all how? just comes out, but they're always the cutest pregnant people because it's just like, it's true. they're adorable. Yeah. But it's like a snake that swallowed a basketball. <laughs> right. Right. So, yeah, I think you're you're right on. There's probably a number of people that could use visceral manipulation, even if they haven't had a cesarean. But, yeah. you know, cesareans are so, are, I think, are becoming a lot more common lately. I think, if I remember right, because my sister, she had a cesarean, and I think it's like one in three. We were looking that it up. Right. One yeah. in three pregnancies is a cesarean, which just seems like super high. And maybe I'm just like disoriented because my mom had all vaginal. Mm. That's what my sister was saying too when she had the kid. She was like, I never thought I'd have a C-section. Like it wasn't even like a part of my birth yeah. like plan, you know? You know, I never would have thought. And she's like, I don't know why, because they're pretty common. And I'm like, yeah, I could totally see that. But I, I think certainly- all, I guess we all envision- the people who are like, I'm going to have my baby on October 12th. Right, like, right. You know, the scheduled C-section, I think. Yeah. A lot of people kind of imagine that, but no, they, stuff gets real weird during childbirth. So sometimes, I mean, hell, I was, I was this close to a C-section and by some miracle squeeze that kid out vaginally, but my God, I was, we were literally, <laughs> did I ever tell you this? We were in the yeah, operating did. room. I, I love like, the story, yeah. The surgeon was there, ready to cut, scalpel in hand, practically, like, licking her chops, ready to go. And the only thing, I shit you not, the only reason why I had my daughter vaginally is because when they brought in the surgeon to do the informed consent shtick, I don't think they got a surgeon. I think they pulled a random 12-year-old off the sidewalk, and they put her in scrubs, and they were like, here, go talk to this lady. It was so scary. She looked like a baby. Oh my she, gosh. she, there's no way that, that child girl had had a period ever. And I was like, <laughs> no, no. You, and I like, I'm young, but I was like, no, you look entirely too young to be cutting into me. And I think on some level deep down, my body was like, we have to rally. We have to get yeah. this kid out of the vagina right now. Because yeah. otherwise, that prepubescent middle schooler is going to cut you open. Oh, my God. So, you really, thank God they you pulled really, the 12-year-old off the street to scare the milkers deep. out of me. Yep, I, had, you didn't want I that, dug deep. You didn't want that Doogie Howser oh doctor For real. working on you. Not, not um, happening. Not today, sister. Yeah. But, yeah, I'd be curious... If it was studied, and I, again, I typically think a lot of manual therapies, whether you have adhesions or not, can be helpful. Totally. Tend to just like soothe the the area. They bring blood flow to the area. I mean, yeah. I think Stimulate that they the can just nerve potentially. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of benefits overall, but you know, I I hadn't thought about you know people. Outside of maybe some of the people that have, what's the the condition? Is it like diastasis recti? Is that like... Oh, uh uh-huh. Yeah. I I know some women that have, you know, some of those situations going on that could use some therapies and things like that. But I don't think I had thought about, you know, if you had a typical regular pregnancy. And maybe because I haven't been through it yet. (laughs) 
Yeah, just anyway, hold your on. organs are going to get moved around whether you like it or not. Oh my gosh, I wonder where my child will, will decide to kick. I'm telling you, Jess was all about the liver. Oh my gosh. Yep, my little ninja. But anyhow, so yeah, I think that, um, it, and I actually, I want to backpedal one step before we continue the conversation, because mm-hmm. maybe this is a good kind of lens, simplified though it may be, this might be a good lens for people to think about the hormone um, thing. If you imagine that for any hormone, there's a sweet spot, like a normal range, if you will, a normal amount of activity for, say, estrogen, then it's possible for any hormone that you could be deficient in it or have an excess of it. And if there's any hormones like estrogen and progesterone where the ratio matters, then you could have one in excess of the other. So, for example, estrogen dominance, quote unquote, you could either have, you know, you can have estrogen dominance presenting as too much estrogen just because you have a deficiency in progesterone. So it's like that estrogenic activity is not matched. Or you might have a normal amount of progesterone and you just might have so much estrogen. Right. That it's swimming around in your veins like crazy and you've got, you know, quadruple the amount of estrogen that a normal human needs. Or, you know, maybe it's something more subtle or you could have a deficiency in estrogen or a deficiency in progesterone. So I think that that's maybe a good way to think of it is that with pregnancy, for example, you're going to have a lot more progesterone. Mm-hmm. And I'll add to with pregnancy, I think if anything, pregnancy is associated with slowing down of motility a bit and more more of an incidence of, of constipation and reflux. Right. And I think it's a combination of the relaxin hormone, literally relaxing all of the tissues and making everything loosey goosey. And mm. also, um, which is good, right? Because it's going to start opening up the pelvis and allowing the birth canal to open up ultimately. But everything's kind of getting loosey-goosey from the relaxin. And motility is probably going to slow down at least a bit because of the progesterone, which is right. really high compared to estrogen. And you still have estrogen that's made in pregnancy, but it's a weaker type of estrogen. So right. relatively speaking, you get more progesterone in pregnancy. But Maybe seeing it through that lens will help. And similarly, there are symptoms and medical conditions that are associated with a relative lack of estrogen or a relative overabundance of estrogen, again, perhaps relative to progesterone. So we can kind of think of it through that. And if you imagine the female hormonal cycle, if you imagine like, and normally I would draw this out for people, so you'll have to just bear with me here. It's This is like the visual learner trying to explain something in a non-visual format, so brace yourself. But during, during menses, during your menstrual cycle, you don't have any progesterone and you hardly have any estrogen at that point. And you, but you do have follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH. It's not made in the ovaries, that's made in the pituitary, but you have this pituitary hormone stimulating the follicle. And then eventually, you know, maybe at the tail end of your period, you'll start to get estrogen finally climbing back up. And then that's going to peter out a little bit. And that dip triggers another pituitary hormone, luteinizing hormone to be released just for a day. And that's when that's the hormone that triggers ovulation. And then you go, you know, down the tube goes the egg. Yes, the sound effect was important. Then after ovulation, now you get 
another surge of estrogen and you get progesterone coming onto the scene. You have that nice solid peak of both of those hormones. Hopefully their activity is relatively matched through the second half of your cycle. And then it's that last like three to five days before your period sets in that the levels of those two hormones start to decline. For lack of a better term, it's almost like the body is figuring out like, okay, guys, we're not getting pregnant. Okay. Abort mission. (laughs) And then, you know, to use a pun that's maybe a little bit inappropriate, but still fits. But it's like at some point when the hormones decrease enough, it's like the body gets the memo. Oh, JK, LOL, we're not pregnant. Shed the lining. And then you start the whole cycle all over again. But if you think of the times in the menstrual cycle where women tend to feel better or worse, a lot of times, oddly enough, it's when the hormones are at a low point is when we start to see more symptoms. So again, that mm. last, you know, three to five days prior to menses, hormones are taking a nosedive. Right. The first portion, certainly of your menstrual cycle, you really don't have any progesterone or estrogen to speak of, maybe a little bit of estrogen. And then you get that that peak of estrogen, but then you get a little dip in estrogen around ovulation. And for some women, they feel that the symptoms more so around ovulation. So I think a lot of it could have to do with not just a deficiency of of hormones, because I think that's a little, a blatant deficiency is less common amongst menstruating women. Menopausally, sure. But it's almost like your body and your receptors for these hormones have become accustomed to a certain amount of hormone. And if you dip really low comparatively at one point of your cycle, it's almost like the receptors are kind of shell-shocked. And they're like, Mm -hmm. whoa, where'd the hormone go? And then you get some of these effects. Um, But I, that's at least what I've kind of wrapped my head around. And I think it, it's probably because both estrogen and progesterone play a role in healing the gut lining. So if you have any sort of leaky gut, they're going to help repair the gut lining, the epithelial barrier. They also promote motility, particularly estrogen. So they're, and they're interacting with the microbiome. They're interacting with the immune system. So it's probably there's going to be some, some degree of protective effect or anti-inflammatory effect if you're in that sweet spot for hormones. But then similarly, if you have too much, it's too much of a good thing. And then estrogen dominance or over-representation of estrogen is is associated with IBS in its own own kind of right also. But do you want to weigh in on the the relative, like the low end of the spectrum and the deficiency side of things, maybe to start with? Yeah, well, and I think, you know, are you talking about with estrogen? I think, yeah, I, I think more so with estrogen at the moment, yeah. Well, I think, you know, one thing I want to point out just in general that I see a lot. And again, everyone thinks I'm beating. Everyone's probably like Amy beats the Amy and Nikki beat this dead horse. But like with getting enough calories in, like our sex hormones are very sensitive to nutritional status because our bodies don't want you to have a baby. It's the most metabolically expensive thing that humans do is produce a baby. It's a tiny parasite, to be clear. Yes, exactly. So the body is like, you know, checking around to be like, okay, does she have enough short-term fuel to have a baby? And it will get signals from insulin for Mm -hmm. that. Like if your insulin levels 
your insulin signaling is not robust enough, it can affect um, sex hormones. And then it also, um, your your body will also look towards fat as well, like body fat, and it'll say, oh, do I have enough body fat? That's long-term stores. So it's your body basically reads the situation of, do I have enough short-term fuel and enough long-term fuel to be able to make and take care of a child? And I think a lot of times when there's, you know, low levels of some of these sex hormones and potentially period irregularity, like amenorrhea, like if it's you, you miss a lot of different cycles, if you're kind of like, yeah, I don't know, you miss some, but not, mm-hmm. a, but you're kind of on and off. If you don't have a regular cycle, I just wanted to point out that you know, it certainly could be nutritional related. That's the number one thing I look for when I have clients that have amenorrhea. And I think it has a lot to do with the body just understanding resources aren't there. And we need to wait for resources to become more of, we need to wait for resources to become available in order for you to have the sex hormone resources and other potential hormones needed to produce a kid or the levels yeah. that that are needed to produce a child. And I know that, again we all don't want children. <laughs> so it's not yeah. saying that like but, but this your is body what the body doesn't know that. Right. That's your body thing. is designed to make babies. Yeah. And so when when it's doing stuff to shut that down, it's kind of like shutting down non-essential systems yeah. so to speak. Mm-hmm. So reproductions often like one of the first to go where it's like, oh, we don't need this like right now. We need yeah. to survive. And so I, I wanted to point that out because I find a lot of people that have just like sort of lower hormones across the board, lower sex hormones across the board, typically, or I usually look for where nutrition's falling and maybe yeah. it's carb related, maybe it's overall calorie related. But it's something I really pay attention to when there's amenorrhea or like irregularities at play. Absolutely. And I think, you know, looking back, did I ever tell you, like, my period was really wonky when I was a teenager. And, you know, I was one of those girls, I would get like two periods a year, maybe. Yeah. Um, And that was, you know all the way up through until I was about 17, when in their infinite wisdom, my primary care or whoever was like, oh, well, that's not good for your bones or something. Uh, Here, we'll fix it. And they put me on birth control pills at Mm -hmm. 17. And I stayed on that for I think it was seven years until I figured out, oh, this isn't fixing jack shit. I need to do some other stuff. But I look back and it's like, okay, well, first of all, my lunch on a regular basis, at least in high school, I don't remember exactly going back to middle school, but I vividly remember my school cafeteria in high school. And on a very regular basis, my entire school lunch, well, first of all, I was not a breakfast eater. My mom would beg me to eat breakfast and she would pretty much send me sprinting after the school bus because I was chronically late, but she would pretty much send me with like a carnation instant breakfast, which now makes me want to regurgitate a little Or she would like throw a Pop-Tart at me or throw a granola bar at me and be like, please, for the love of God, eat something. And half the time I would, half the time I would not. And I would just like shove it in my locker and forget about it for months on end. But A, I was very inconsistent about eating breakfast. And when I did eat breakfast, it was not very nutritious, at least during the school 
work week. Then at lunch, I remember my school cafeteria. And on the regular, my go-to meal was mozzarella sticks. That's yeah. it. End of oh, list. God. End of <laughs> yeah. list. I don't even know if I really ate much of the marinara sauce in truth. But it was like, you know, like five of them. They're like, you know, like right. three inches long, like this big around. And it, it was amazing and delicious. I would so eat those again if I could. But I ate that like every day of my life, practically right. for years. And then maybe every now and then I mixed it up and had like the shitty school pizza or something. But right. minimum four days a week, I was eating only about four or five largish sized mozzarella sticks at lunch. And then we probably did fine at dinner, you know, growing up. Like, right. I think we had our fair share of like box macaroni and cheese and McDonald's and that kind of shit. But we did eat some healthy stuff as well. But I look back and I'm like, oh, yeah, I wonder if I wasn't getting enough calorie, calorie needs met. And also I was a vegetarian too. So I was probably hella deficient in a bunch of stuff. And just like my eating habits were all squirrely. And I, I look back right. and I think that it was probably largely nutritionally related. And, you know, I definitely, I like drank soda and I had a couple extra pounds on me. So I wonder how much was like a little bit of low lying insulin resistance, crappy, right. you know, irregular eating habits, lack of nutrition, lack of calories, lack of, you know, vitamins and minerals and nutrients. Uh, but I was a really good example of that looking back. And again, conventional medicine, their answer is, oh, <laughs> birth control pill. Boom. Right. We fixed it. Yay. And it wasn't right. until I started learning functional medicine that I realized, oh, this didn't fix anything. Crap. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting because I was sort of the same scenario in a way. I think for me, I had a lot of amenorrhea in high school due to just the level of Running. sports that I did. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, playing two hours of like high intensity basketball or running cross country, you know, these are things that burn so many calories. Like unless you're paying close attention to what you're eating, which again, most girls don't. Um, there's or again are purposefully like monitoring calories uh but i i think there's there's something called the female athlete triad yeah. um and amenorrhea is a part of that triad and it's something i would love to get into more with some of the young with like teenage girls on like mm -hmm. how to eat properly because especially for the level of activity that they're doing because I do think it would help performance. And if you have, you know, I, I think that it can affect hormones down the line. Like when your hormones are developing and things yeah. are off, it could certainly affect your long-term hor hormonal health. And so it's definitely something to pay attention to as you're younger. My sort of scenario would be like, I wouldn't have my period for like four or five months with cross country season, like in that mix. Mm. And then I'd get it like at bas in basketball at some point. And then softball was my spring sport. So Good like that woman. was, you were busy. I was nonstop and it was probably bad. <laughs> like in terms of, <laughs> of my health, not that I like wasn't One out of healthy. 10 stars would, re would not recommend. Right. But it, I definitely was run down because I'd play softball like 
high school softball pretty competitively and then I'd also play basketball all through that period of time and in the summer like I never had a break so to speak so it was insane and I I I I always it makes me a little nervous that you know a lot of teens are not don't know how to eat for the for performance and i think again in adulthood a lot of people don't really know how to eat for performance so it's it's something near and dear to my heart and i think your scenario of being put on birth control to regulate cycles is very common they fixed i yeah well i've i looked up a stat one time or maybe i read it somewhere i think it's like 47 percent of birth control prescriptions are written not for preventing pregnancy, but yeah. for regulating cycles. Yeah. Just wild. I mean, and like, on the surface level, it seems like it works, quote unquote, because it right. did successfully trick my body into bleeding once a month. Right. And it was like clockwork, right? Because I was on the pill. So in a sense, it it felt like it worked. And right. that's why for a really long time, I never questioned it. I never thought outside of the box to really think much of it until I still remember I was sitting in Datis Karazian's class. Again, like all these life lessons with Datis. Right. I feel like I should right. write up a series. Life lessons with Datis. Hashtag. But but um, you aren't actually with him. <laughs> huh? It's funny because life oh, lessons yeah. with Datis. But he's not actually there. These are just yeah, no. lessons that you've picked up through time. Yeah, just stalking him over the years. Right. But, like, I remember it was his endocrinology seminar. And I remember, like, you know, you're like, I had, I've all set up at the seminar. And I've, I've, I've always been the person that I bring all my colored pens, all my colored sticky notes and highlighters. And I'm like, I'm... There, I like to make my notes really pretty when I go to seminars and classes and stuff. So I've yeah. like got my display of all my stuff and I'm diligently taking notes and being a good student. And then he launches into this halfway between like a monologue and a rant, but he launches into this whole shtick about, yeah, you know, we've all seen those female patients, right? Who have been put on birth control to regulate their periods and they've been on birth control for like eight years and it's ludicrous for X, Y, Z reasons. And he's like kind of getting persnickety about it. Like, yeah, we've all had those patients, right? Isn't this crazy? And everyone in the room, all the clinicians are like, yeah, this is bullshit. And I'm like, oh, I've been <laughs> right. on this for seven years. He's talking about me. And I think oh I'm, I'm pretty sure I looked at my best friend and was like, he's talking about me. Baby, what do oh. I do? And, you know, he just, he talked about why it's not actually fixing what it says it's fixing. And there are better ways to do this. And also you might F up your hormones in the long run doing that because your poor pituitary is going to be all sorts of confused if it's been getting these wonky signals for literally years and years and years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, again, I, I think there's a time and place for hormone replacement and, and I, yeah, but I also think that the idea that you're fixing something most of the time with hormones, there's a reason why the body's doing what it's doing. Yeah. And if you can kind of sort out why, and again, there might be periods of time or people that they know the, the why. Periods of time. Yeah, periods, <laughs> you know. Um, but there might be people that know the why in, in doing some extra hormones makes sense for their why. But I think a lot of people yeah. 
sort of go on these hormones expecting it to fix the problem, but it just maybe band-aids it? Maybe? Um, I don't even know in most cases if I would consider it band-aiding much. Um, I think, you know, it could probably... The things that are band-aids can sometimes help with root causes. Like, I do think band-aids right. get a bad rap. But, like, one example, just as a... This is not related to female hormones, but um, I'm working with a guy right now, and one of the things that's come up with him, with all of his gut health squirreliness and struggles, is low testosterone. And he's actually taking prescription testosterone right now. It's like, right. okay. Well, for this scenario he would have a really hard time repairing his gut lining and he would have a heck of a time regulating motility, regulating the immune system, using his brain, using his brain and gut axis. Like all of those things go out the window when you have blatantly low testosterone. So, and then he can't heal and he can't make forward progress on the dysbiosis or whatever it is that he's working on. So it's like, okay, maybe some people need to use a prescription and like take testosterone or estrogen or birth control for a period of time, maybe like a couple of months. Right. And that will facilitate the repair of the gut lining. It will facilitate motility and a better immune response and a gut brain axis control and autonomic control to a point where then you could get ahead of the SIBO or the dysbiosis or the candida or whatever it is you're working on. And then if the gut heals, you're going to have less inflammation and that's going to mess up your hormones less if you are not inflamed anymore. And you're going to be able to finally absorb calories and vitamins and minerals and get the nutrients you need to make your own hormones in the first place. Right. Right. So it's like, I could see temporary replacement kind of buying you enough time to work on the root causes so that then you don't need to do that long-term. But it's, you know, in my scenario, there was no intention of that. There right. was no discussion of that. It's just like, here, you're fixed. Well, yeah. Well and, okay. th- like, well, and I think the idea that, like, the problem of your periods being a- irregular is being fixed by birth control mm-hmm. instead of just it sort of masking it in a way. Whereas, like, the scenario where yeah. you're working on building up someone's testosterone like you're doing other strategies where the the band-aid of adding some testosterone in is great and there's a short-term like it's a short-term process for and you're working on other things and it's kind of a part of a multifactorial strategy but you weren't under the illusion that like you know the testosterone is going to fix it in and of itself, but it can be a, a something that helps you get to the next level. Yeah, it's, um, it's a step in the right direction. Right, right, which I think to- makes total sense. But I, again, I think that a lot of times, like in particular with the birth control situation, there's this idea that it's like, and it's more of a conventional idea that it's fixing the situation, and it's like, uh, like but you'd be it? much. Right. You'd be much better off actually trying to analyze what's going on with the system and why hormones are dysfunctional and why, you know, you might not be having a period um, instead of uh, jumping right on it. So, yeah, I totally get what you're saying. I think, again, in, in certain situations, replacement can be really helpful. 
I've actually seen some people too during like menopausal periods um, do okay with some replacement. So again, I, I totally see some benefit for that for sure. Yeah. And to go, you know, to kind of zoom in a little bit more on the deficiency side of things, mm-hmm. um, like what would be some symptoms that might tip off a woman that she is relatively deficient in estrogen? Menopause, you could think of yeah. that as one. That's kind of the classic. The other one that I tend to think of the most is uh, vaginal dryness. Yeah. It tends to be a biggie. Um, yeah. You Sometimes know, any... like low libido, I think, too. But vaginal Someone... dryness, I I think for sure. The low libido seems to be more related to low testosterone. Uh, yeah. But True. you make estrogen out of testosterone. So you could mm-hmm. be deficient in both hormones and then, you know, you still need to work on why that is the root cause of that. But yeah, libido seems to be controlled by testosterone in both sexes. But if you think about the symptoms that women go through during menopause, you can have some of those symptoms, maybe right. to a lesser degree when you're menstruating, and that could tip you off that you are relatively deficient. So again, vaginal dryness, hot flashes, night sweats. Low libido, again, tying in with testosterone as well. Irregular or absent periods certainly could be mm-hmm. a consequence of low estrogen. So yeah, those would be sort of some of the things. Even brain fog to some degree, like a lot of women report brain fog going through menopause. But I yeah. think it's important to acknowledge that you can have brain fog for literally a million and one right, different right. reasons. So if you only have brain fog, I don't think that's enough to say, oh God, I'm deficient in estrogen. But if that's like a piece of the bigger clinical picture, then perhaps that could tip you off. But why don't we talk about the yin to the yang? What about estrogen excess? estrogen mm. dominance so so to speak yeah well, what are some think... symptoms that might tip a lady off that she has excessive estrogen production or activity yeah well i think mood changes can be a big one that that i think are are present you know i think that you know you could have more symptoms sort of prior to cycle like more pms related symptoms mm. do you do you see that with your estrogen yeah. dominance And you know what I think my theory is on that? Mm -hmm. So again, it's like, remember that you get these highs and lows in the hormones, progesterone and estrogen. And that point right before your period is a a low point for hormone production. Well, Mm -hmm. if you think about it, and, and if you're not on YouTube, you're missing the visual. But like, if you have, say, like, if your low point is here and your high point is here, then the body's like, oh, okay, we can deal with that. But if your low point is at the same level, but your high point is now off the charts high, the difference between those two points, the difference between the high and the low point is such a profound plummet that then I think the body probably becomes more agitated. And it's almost like going through withdrawal of the hormones, if you want to look at it that way. So that's my theory. I think, yes, but I think it's because with estrogen dominance it's like your body gets and your receptors get so used to that sky high level of estrogen that then it's like it really feels like it's crashing and burning to come back down to right the right the no hormone baseline it's much more uh, shocking to the system to go through that ebb and flow process right and i think um i think i see like breast tenderness too with estrogen Mm -hmm. dominance i would say fibrocystic 
breasts as well, or fibroids, like right. uterine fibroids. Those tend to be associated with estrogen dominance. Yeah. Yeah, which makes me wonder, too. I, in high school, or maybe it was later high school, would get a little bit of those, like, where I'd almost feel them. Mm-hmm. Like, I could physically feel them. I'd be like, oh, my God, like, do I have a lump? You know, when you're, like, 19 trying to, like, figure out your body. And I remember vividly, like, going to the doctor and she'd be like, oh, no, you're fine. You know, these are normal. But I think, you know, sometimes there can be, I would say, stronger flow with estrogen dominance. It's not the only thing, but... Heavier. Heavier, I would say. I don't know if I could wrap my head around stronger flow, what that would look like exactly. You knew what what I was talking about. I pick it up with your foot down, but I just... A rush. A rush of blood. That's right. A gushing. Uh, gushing. Uh, a geyser. Yes, a geyser. Wanted to make sure we provided that clarity for well, our dear listeners here. It's It makes me laugh because um, Armand's mom uses an expression. <laughs> She's going to die. But she uses an ex- expression like, you know, when you like when you're on your period and you're like you get up from laying down or like you change position and just like it feels like it's flooding. Have you ever uh-huh. yeah. she'll talk about flooding. It's she's flooding. She'll say that and I'm like, Good lord <laughs> But I I it makes me laugh every time I think about it. Yeah. We're normalizing period talk today. Oh, absolutely. Side note, by the way, I cannot believe how many years of my life I lived without menstrual cup. And period underpants. Oh my God. They are the best inventions on planet Earth. I don't know how I lived without them. I thought that both of them would be so gross. They're amazing. And mm. they are no no worse to deal with than your average, you know, pad or tampon experience. But oh my gosh. Cannot, cannot talk about I that have a menstrual cup, like, in my person. I have never tried it yet. Something I've had for a while. I went to this, I went to, I went to a health store and like did a talk. And when I was there, I was talking to the ladies that work there and, you know, they're like, we need to get tampons out of vaginas. You know, like they're like kind of yelling about it. And then they're like, here, take this like cup, this menstrual cup. I was like, okay, but I never, I've heard good things. I just have never gotten around to like trying it. Get around to it, my friend, because it's. It, it's, I don't know, it's just, it's wonderful. I mean, granted, like, depending how heavy your flow is, you might have to empty it quite a bit. But again, like, it's the equivalent of taking out a tampon and putting in a new one. But, and I will share too, if you didn't know this, there's a lot of different brands of menstrual cups. They're all a bit different. Like, the firmness of the material, the material they use, the length of the cup, the width of the cup, like, they're all apparently a bit different. I just lucked up because I got the Diva Cup and because that's like the most popular and well-known of the cups. And I just bought that one. And apparently I read some because there was like an article a few years ago and it was like comparison of the 18 most popular menstrual cups or whatever. You know, I found it on like Pinterest or something. And I just I had already been using my Diva Cup for a while at that point. But I was like, yeah, I'm curious. Why? Why the hell not? And I read and it said that the Diva Cup is a bit, I think the, like the silicone is a bit firmer mm-hmm. and the cup itself is a bit longer. 
than some okay. of the other brands. So it's it's more well suited for a muscular long vagina. And I was like, <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. So now I know that about myself. But I'm six feet tall, so it makes Good sense that you. I would have a long vaginal tract, right? Like, yes. the rest of me is long, so why wouldn't that part of my body be long? So, fun fact, if you are if you are shorter in stature than I am, I don't know if the Diva Cup would be right for you, but apparently it's more so fitting, more appropriate for long muscular vaginas. So you can take that <laughs> I one with you. I feel like my... My... Would you say your vagina is long and muscular? <laughs> I would probably say my vagina is, is more stir, like a uh, stocky. <laughs> Nikki is losing her mind. Stir- I need to find what, whatever menstrual whatever menstrual cup is for stocky vaginas. <laughs> well, I will try to find this article for you, my friend. Yeah. Specifically oh, short and stocky, that would be <laughs> that would be what I would say. This is fabulous. Well, I I will seriously, I'll try to find that article because it was very informative when I was reading it. But just know one size does not fit all for anything in life, but particularly menstrual cups. And I will say this too, just for what it's worth. For the for you, my friend, and our dear listeners, I'm gonna pull up my Amazon app. Hold on. And I will tell you. So I, I, I had been eyeballing period panties for quite some time. You know that like you you hear about them and you see what is the brand that is out there? Is it like, thinks thinks yeah with an X. So you know like you hear about it, you're like, oh, that seems like a really good idea. And have you ever looked at those? Thinks brand underpants are like thirty three dollars a pair. Oh my and I'm god! Like, wow. So if you want to have enough, like, so for me, I want to wear something the day before I think I'm going to get my period or like the mm-hmm. day of if, if I'm not sure. But like, I would have to spend $200 on underwear. Are you kidding me? No. Well, it's underwear. I, I also, they could have ha- made so much better of a name choice. Like, thinks? Really? Like, you could come yeah, up with so much. has nothing to do so- with thinking. Right. It could be a, a much funner, more appropriate name than things. True. True. Even period pants. Like, you know, <laughs> even mean, that's you better know, than right things. Point, man. Well, yeah. I decided I was not willing to make that level of it because I was yeah. not convinced that period pants were going to be my new favorite thing ever. But what I ended up getting on Amazon, it is the brand. It, and this is weird. Now everybody's going to know what period pants I have. Oh, well. Um, the brand is Innercy, I-N-N-E-R-S-Y, and they have 10,000 reviews on Amazon, largely favorable, three pairs, $22.99, and free Amazon shipping. They're great. Wow. Fabulous. So you can, you can cheap it out a bit and get those on Amazon. But also not a fun name. No, no, not, I mean... Well, like, that's the brand, right? So, like, the brand name is, what did I say? Intercee. But then the the item, it's titled, and by the way, I love Amazon naming. Because, like, they just try to throw in as many keywords as humanly possible right, in the right. title of the thing. So they show up on the first page of the search results. It's fantastic. Um, but it's titled, 
Women's hipster period underwear, postpartum <laughs> teens menstrual panties three pack. I was like, they're just they're chucking words. Teens <laughs> menstrual postpartum period underwear. Um, yeah, why not? But yeah, uh, yeah, three three pack, twenty two ninety nine or whatever I said it was. Mm-hmm. Excellent, revolutionary. You heard it here, folks. I actually I felt motivated enough to write a review on Amazon, and I don't always get off my butt to write amazon reviews but that one i was like no this is a game changer I love yeah it. yeah for but sure. anyway go, but going back to estrogen dominance so talking about our vaginas and our underwear aside so now we'll segue back over so i agree i think breast pain and tenderness fibrocystic breasts fibroids more like pms like mood kind of changes um i would also say women who have heavier flows and also endometriosis yeah uh, if sure. you have a suspicion of or a diagnosis of endometriosis which side note is not at all uncommon uh, that is typically associated with estrogen dominance as well and i've i've seen those symptoms greatly improve by working on the gut because our gut is going to be largely in control of recycling estrogen and bringing it back into circulation I've also seen those symptoms greatly reduce or go away with high-dose fish oil. It seems like the fish oil... I remember reading some papers and seeing some stuff that like fish oil can almost act like a pseudo-hormone in a way because of its effect on prostaglandins. And I've seen high-dose fish oil do really, really well, especially for period cramps and breast pain and tenderness. And then, you know, there's a myriad of herbs that can be helpful for hormones as well. But I do think a lot of it harkens back to working on the gut microbiome largely because again it's going to be that that beta glucuronidase enzyme that's recycling your estrogen and dumping it back into circulation and then you're off to the races because now you're producing estrogen and you're recycling a whole bunch of it from your gut and it's ultimately the dysbiosis that contributes to that the most for most women i think but what has your experience been with the estrogen dominance kind of world yeah i mean i think that you know, I would say working on the gut's huge in that with that particular person in working on, you know, building up good microbes mm-hmm. and sort of crowding out bad bugs, yeah. I think is very important. I also think there's a couple other things that if someone's having really intense um, period pain or cramping or things mm-hmm. like that, and again, I don't necessarily know if they've linked it in some of these studies to estrogen specifically. I would have to go back and look through some research. But the ones that I find that are studied the most are B6 and magnesium. That mm-hmm. They tend to be uh, really helpful. And again, I wonder if it has to do a little with detoxification somewhat. That's what I'm wondering. Like, if you're someone that has estrogen excess, both magnesium and B6 are important for detoxification and could affect just your eliminating more of the estrogen in some way. But they both have been shown to help with cramping and help with um, some of the period symptoms. Mm -hmm. So, again, those would be easy things to try to up a little bit either in food forms or supplementally is taking a little bit of like p5p which is b6 i would try to get the active form and then doing a little bit of extra magnesium in food or again supplementally yeah yeah i think those are very obtainable for a lot of 
a lot of women. And keep in mind, other nutrients probably play a role too. And this is why it's important to just make sure you're getting enough nutrition and enough calories and having a well-rounded, balanced diet. Because then we could even think of things like folate and B12 and needing to, you know, kind of almost detoxify estrogen and get it out of your body. But you you need to methylate it and you need to clear it out of your body. And you do need methyl donors like your B vitamins to do that for you too. So probably all of the nutrients, all of the vitamins and minerals play some role, even if we're not super cognitively aware of them. But yeah, I think the gut microbiome and nutrition play a huge role. And I would say too, I've, I don't know about you, but I've had some women where like, for example, we'll talk about iron and their ferritin is in the toilet, Mm. pun totally intended, or, you know, they're a little bit anemic and we're talking about how important that is for the gut. And I've had some women where we're supplementing them with iron and we're trying to boost iron in their, their diet. But it's like, we can't get ahead of the game because they're physically losing so much blood because of the, the awful period stuff. So for those circumstances, you might want to do more direct hormone work and try to Mm. slow the flow a bit. So things like um, there's an herb called shepherd's purse that you could get as a tincture and you could take that and that'll help slow down the flow and lessen the bleed quite a bit. Even things like black cohosh could have an effect, but really like getting more more of an idea of what your hormones are up to, Mm. maybe get some testing done. And understand, like, do I have a deficiency in progesterone? Do I have an excess in estrogen? Am I not methylating it? Like, understanding where where this is coming from, and then you can target it with herbs. But one really kind of quick and dirty thing that I've had a lot of women do, if they just have a heavy flow, but there's otherwise not a lot of hormonal stuff going on, and we just want to slow down the bleeding, Shepherd's Perks works remarkably well for those kind of circumstances. And how bad thinks name is shepherd's purse makes up for it shepherd's purse is a very unique name and i appreciate it yes but it yeah i mean makes you wonder who named it right like it must have been a shepherd right who carried right. this herb in their purse i, I just, didn't I even wonder know what the shepherd's story is. i didn't even know shepherd's had purses some must yeah you know it would be a shepherd that was very okay with their feminine side right True. Or maybe it was a female shepherd. Yeah. Maybe maybe that's a thing. I don't wow. know. Do we have any do we have any listeners from Scotland? Can you yes. teach us about shepherds? I yes. imagine that you folks know a lot of them. Exactly. But I, I think the other like the thing about iron too is that makes it so problematic is low iron seems to make cycles worse, like make the flow worse too. And it's like, well, sh- can I catch a break? Like, yeah. you know, gets into like the a more vicious cycle scenario. Um, yeah. And so it, it, it can be problematic if ferritin's low, I agree. Well, okay, because you I, need blood flow to run everything in your body. So no organ in your body likes to operate under a circumstance of a lack of oxygen or a lack of proper cofactors. So yeah, iron deficiency or anemia or both is going to wreak havoc on every tissue of the body. So shit's just going to be weird with, without enough iron. Yeah. And I think um, it's it's interesting too, you know, because I think you're right. With nutrition broadly, 
Like, I almost think people should try to do, if you're having period issues, you should try, or hormonal issues, or really, if you're listening to this podcast in general, doing a two to three day chronometer exercise for yourself, Mm -hmm. just to get a sense of what your nutrition's looking like as a whole. Like, are you getting enough calories and are your macros nicely balanced? Like, that'd be Mm -hmm. a really good start. And then the micronutrition, I think, comes in later, but... You know, getting a sense of that, I think, is really important because, you know, especially if you've had gut issues for a while, it can affect your ability to take in more food. Mm -hmm. Like, I think naturally gut issues don't necessarily promote overeating as much as, like, if you're not enjoying eating and you're getting symptomatic, most people are cutting, cutting back. So doing a little bit of tracking just to see where your overall nutrition's falling with most hormone issues, I think, are going to be helpful. And even doing some tweaks and seeing how hormones might change from those tweaks, I think, would be would be in, or is inter, is an interesting exper, experiment from what I've seen. So like yeah. seeing someone at baseline where hormones are and optimizing their nutrition over the course of you know, three, four months, it can be a huge difference. And you just touched on something really important that I wish I remembered to say at the beginning of this episode. (laughs) Oh, well, (laughs) you're here now. Um, (laughs) Right. Is that with female hormones, you have to be patient. You're not, you're not going to start taking black cohosh or Vitex or whatever on a Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, have the best period of your life. Like it is, it is so the opposite of instant gratification because it's almost like a chain of dominoes. Again, we're like FSH, like FSH is triggering estrogen and then estrogen peaks and dips and that triggers LH and then LH, the surge is triggering progesterone and then the fall. And it's like one after the other, after the other, like a cascade of dominoes falling. And then you're coming in midway through that giant domino cascade and you're trying to intervene and you're trying to steer the dominoes a different direction, it can take several cycles to really see an impact from hormone work. So you've got to be patient with it. I know that a lot of herbal textbooks say for Vitex, for example, you need to give it a minimum of six months to really judge whether or not it's working. So keep that in mind. I think that the estrogen modulators you know, things like red clover and soy, those can start working a bit quicker from what I've seen, because it seems like they work more on the receptors rather than the ups and downs of the hormone levels themselves. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of hormone work takes a lot of time. You're trying to right. intervene in the middle of a very complex web and a very complex long chain of dominoes that's been going on for years and years and years. And your body probably is in its own little rhythm, whether or not it's a favorable rhythm or not is up for grabs, but it's been in that groove, in that rhythm for a prolonged period of time. And then it's going to take time to redirect that. Yeah. And I, again, this is like sort of a more isolated example of that, but I think like, let's say your nutrition hasn't been up to par for like a year or something, you might have been under eating. The body thinks like, okay, we know she's not going to get enough calories. I'm going to, I'm going to preserve resources and not promote sex hormones. Like I'm going to kind of cut back on resources. And then when you start getting enough nutrition in, 
the body's like, ah, like, you know, there's more nutrition, but I don't trust it. <laughs> yeah. Very untrusting. It's like, you know, I'm seeing some stuff happening, but I'll like, believe it when I'm I gonna, see it. Yeah, I'm going to stay the course. Like, yeah. she might have changed a few things, but I don't trust it. And it takes, like, you know, maybe, you know, you... And I think that's even with people adding calories in for their body to even get used to that calorie load. Like, it, mm. there can sometimes be those changes over, like, the first month or two for them to get used to. But, you know, then maybe by the first or second month after doing it, the body's like, hmm, like, this seems like she's actually sticking to something different. She's not screwing with us. This might be right. for real, guys. Right. And I'm so then, like... the like, uterus talking to the ovaries or something. Right. Exactly. So then it's like, like there's kind of a relaxing and the hormones can start to shift because it knows, okay, these resources are here to stay and not going to be gone tomorrow. And we're yeah. going to have to go back to our, our new, our new, or, or go back to our old pattern. So yeah. the body's just trying to like read how consistent this new yeah. pattern of how living and eating. Is. Correct. Correct. Well, And I tend to think of it that way, too. But I'll throw this out also. It could also be that if you've been inadequately nourished for a prolonged period of time, and again, it's like, you know, you you lay off the non-essential workers first, right? Like you you cut those those organs out of the out of the picture first to preserve the function of the more critical organs like your brain, your heart, your lungs and then like even the digestive organs maybe could kind of be like right. preserved but not at optimal function but if you think like of a person who's been malnourished and then they start getting adequate nutrition the body probably like the rest of the body has probably been starved for nutrition too right. so it's going to start allocating those resources to the the really critical organs first mm-hmm. i would think like oh, okay well we're going to take this nutrition and we're going to give it to the heart and the brain and the stomach and the liver. And we're going to make sure that all of the necessary organs are happy again. And then we'll bring back the unnecessary worker, AKA, you know, your ovaries. And then we'll start the hormone party again for real, for real. But it's like, you know, if you're, if your department has been severely underfunded for five years, (laughs) what are you going to do? Are you going to, are you going to hire more employees no, you're going to fund the projects that you're already working on and you're going to fund the employees you already have first. And then you're going to hire, you know, mm-hmm. the temp workers back on or whatever it might be. Right, so, right. Might be some of that too. For sure. Uh, and I will say a- another thing to marinate on, which is very complex and beyond the scope of our podcast probably, but hormones interact with the immune system as well. Mm-hmm. And one thing I'll share, and I, you alluded to this earlier, is that higher levels of estrogen tend to be more associated with histamine mm-hmm. overburden or histamine intolerance. So similarly, you might have a bit more likelihood to be estrogen dominant if you present with a lot of histamine intolerance symptoms. Or if you right. know, if you have been diagnosed with things like mast cell activation, I would certainly think about that quite a bit more because the high higher estrogen begets higher histamine and then higher histamine begets higher estrogen and they kind of feed into each other in a squirrely way. Mm-hmm. And estrogen facilitates mast cell degranulation versus progesterone, which seems to have the opposite action. 
progesterone seems to be more of a mast cell stabilizer, if anything, and then testosterone seems to have a neutral effect, not much effect on mast cells. So again, like going back, you can have what we would call estrogen dominance, quote unquote, because you have too much estrogen, or you could just be relatively deficient in progesterone and you don't have that progesterone activity to match the estrogenic activity. And then estrogen is just going around unchecked, degranulating your mast cells and getting all squirrely on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Such a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I can't really speak to the rest of the immune system, like T cells and B cells and macrophages and such. So I really don't know much beyond that as far as like what, uh, what these hormones do to the immune system. I'm sure again, because they're hormones, I'm sure that these hormones affect every type of immune cell. Right. But the one that comes to mind that is especially relevant for IBS is the mast cell piece of it. Um, right. Good point. Good point. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's, um, oh, two other things that I'll just lightly touch on. And I'm by no means not an expert, but the sex hormones also seem to regulate or influence the activity of the parasympathetic nervous system. So mm-hmm. things like the vagus nerve and the parasympathetics yeah. versus the sympathetics. So, you know, if you want to have good vagal tone and make things like enzymes and stomach acid and you want to have good motility, these hormones seem to influence the activity of the autonomic yeah. nervous system and stress chemistry. And that's like a whole other rabbit hole to go down. But there seems to be an influence on both cortisol and corticotropin releasing hormone, which is the hormone that triggers the release of cortisol. So again, it's like stress can impact hormones, but then the hormones could also affect stress chemistry and things like right. pain perception and visceral sensitivity, yeah. which is a pretty big deal for IBS. So keep right. that in mind too. I think you know, it's it's not to say that fixing your hormones will mean that you feel no stress and you're like living living the good life, fancy free, not a not a drop of cortisol in my body. But it can make the stress chemistry roller coaster suck a lot less if you don't have that compounding variable of the wacko sex hormones on top of any stress that you might have. Right. So, and I'll right. I'll say too, I've noticed in my adult life when I'm particularly stressed, my cycle gets all wonky. Like usually it'll elongate. So it'll go from like a 28 day normal cycle out to like 32 or 34 days. And it, it, it gets elongated when I'm under more stress. And then like, if I start reeling into stress and managing that more effectively, then my period will go right back to the normal 28 day kind of cycle. So yeah. That's that's similar to what it does with mine, too. My cycle elongates when there's stress. And sometimes, like, weirdly, it's not necessarily, like, emotional, mental stress. It'll, yeah. It could be physical stress. So I know, like, it was weird because Armand built a gym, like, when COVID started. So mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of, like, my own gym workouts, which were a lot, like, less intense than when I would go to my gym. Yeah. And... Like, there's periods, like, the gym I go to has different, like, like 12-week rotations of different types of movement. So, like, one particular example would be German volume training, which is, like, high reps, but lighter. So, like, it's a lot of rep, more, like, endurance type, 
Like, it's yep. still strength training, but it's a little bit more high rep. Yeah. And so it's just more, in- it was like more intense. And I feel like in those types of scenarios, if I'm not eating more, like if I'm not paying close attention, my cycle will get off. Mm. It's like even myself, like sometimes if I'm not paying attention to like the intensity of the workouts I'm doing mm-hmm. over, you know, a course of 12 weeks, that throws things off a little bit. Mm. If I'm not like adding an extra two or 300 calories in to help my body cope with the higher intensity workouts. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely see it too, um, bit with both physical and emotional mental stress. Yeah. 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 So that's another, another dead horse that we beat on all the time. Get enough calories and, uh, be mindful of your mental health and your stress and, how it's impacting your gut because it can be affecting the gut directly and indirectly through things like hormones. Certainly. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I'm running out of ideas. Do you have any other nuggets of wisdom to give to our dear listeners? Yeah. The only other thing I, I had listed and I hadn't done much research in this. I was like Googling a couple things and maybe this is like an area we could talk about in a little bit more detail at some point would be how estrogen, when we sort of lose estrogen, it affects the bones Mm. um, or kind of as estrogen declines as we age and things like that, it affects bone Mm. health. What they're finding, they're doing a little bit more research on the microbiome in that. And there might be kind of some ways to help mitigate like bone loss. And it could be just, you know, widely there's anti-inflammatory effects with things like probiotics and such. But there's been some kind of interesting studies I've been looking through where they've pinpointed specific bugs and have tried to replace those, and it seems to help with bone loss. Hmm. So again, just just another, like if you're kind of in the menopausal phase or like estrogens are lower, you know, working on your microbiome, there's a couple different, if you like look up probiotics for bone health, or like probiotics for menopause, you'll probably find them. I know there's some lactobacillus strains, but the one strain that they were looking at in the particular study I was talking about was a that a Prevotella strain, Prevotella histolytica, is that, huh. do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Mm-hmm. That that generally goes down, like they've noticed that that bug specifically, or Prevotella in general too, goes down hmm. in menopausal women, bacteroidetes, go up and they did some work in like mice i don't know if they've replicated it in human trials yet or not but there's some interesting stuff happening with like bone health estrogen and probiotics Hmm. and they're finding that it can kind of mitigate some of the estrogen deficiency issues that can come with bone health when you as you age so i just Hmm. want to kind of throw that out there as something if you're struggling with some bone health stuff that you know, there's some research on the horizon and that probiotics could potentially be beneficial. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I know I've I've certainly read a lot that bone loss and like the health of, of bone and whether you're resorbing or laying down new bone mineral, that is very much affected by inflammatory cytokines. Mm-hmm. So if you, you know, if you're just chronically inflamed, autoimmunity, dysbiosis, whatever it might be, if you're chronically inflamed, that inflammatory soup running through your veins is going to affect your bones and 
it tends to favor resorbing the bone rather than laying down new bone. So I know definitely the inflammatory cytokines are related. So it makes me wonder if that's how the probiotic is working, if it's mitigating the inflammatory cytokines. And I wonder if they've ever done studies or they should measuring things like C-reactive protein, glycase, sed rate, you know, maybe some of the interleukins, like that could be really interesting because I wonder if that's how it's working or if it's some totally different mechanism that I can't wrap my head around. Yeah, I'm, I think, again, they talked about um, different cytokines in the article. I'd have to go through it again, but it's interesting. Like, I, I think, again, the different potential connections between, like, the microbiome bone mm. axis. Yeah. So Everything speak, has an axis now. Have you ever I know. That? I know. Everything does have an axis. I'm going to start making up some new, like, Nose newfangled. Hair, gut microbiome yeah. axis. Right. Yeah. Yes. You never know. I like it. Could be. Yeah. I'm well, sure there it, is. It goes to goes to reinforce that gut health really affects everything else in the body. So mm, not, yeah. not to sound like a broken record, but that's that's why we're here. That's why we're talking about this stuff, because gut health is setting the foundation for a healthy body. But you also yeah. you need to build a healthy body around your gut so that your gut isn't chronically stressed out and malnourished and freaking out trying to deal with all the squirreliness around it. So it's very much a two-way street, certainly hormones being one of those two-way streets. Yes, for sure. Well, like I said, I think I'm officially out of ideas. So with that, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Guys, gals, guys and gals, if you're both still here, thank you so much for tuning in. We hope that this episode was insightful, inspiring, humorous, and you know, any other emotions that you were hoping to get out of it. I'm picturing the guys that are still on this episode, just like shell shocked. <laughs> well, <laughs> just like the we eyes talked like... about our, our vaginas and the, the relative length or girth thereof, apparently. Yes. Yes. They're probably mighty confused, but I'm sure the ladies all yes. appreciated it. Cause you know, this, this is real life, right guys? But, uh, yes. but yeah, you, you know the drill. We will see you in the next episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast. You can find both of us on Instagram. You can theoretically send us questions. We're really behind on the Q&A thing, though. So just leave some comments <laughs> in the YouTube video here if you have questions, and we will eventually do that. By the way, I think we talked about it briefly. I think we should just start doing the Q&As as Instagram Lives rather than yeah. podcast episodes. And that way, I feel like we could kind of knock some of those out. So maybe we should do that in the next week or two, speaking of which. But anyway, we will see you on the next episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast. Boys, the next one's going to be for you. We're talking all about testosterone and the androgens next time. And then we're going to be talking with a guest about endometriosis at some point after that. So this is the, uh, the series on hormones. So strap in, buckle up, and we hope you enjoy the ride. Toodaloo.